way he serves here. Check it out. If you can make somebody happier, just for a moment, it's just a moment. They can be having the worst day in the world and you make them smile for a moment, it's a moment of relief. My name is Tony Wagner and I am a world changer. And this is my story. I was pretty much atheist, agnostic, maybe agnostic. Maybe I thought there was a God, but I didn't have time for him. My wife and I just decided almost on a whim to check out Gateway. It was like right down the line of no perfect people. And uh, it didn't seem like they were trying to sell me anything. I started serving in Kids Quest because um, my kids were in there and I didn't want my kids being brainwashed. <laughs> so, working in Kids Quest, and we had a cape day. So I was in front, I had a black shirt on and a black cape on, and I was sitting down before service started. And nobody could see the cape, because it was black and black. But somebody walked up to say hi, and I stood up, and the whole church just got quiet. And I realized that when people see somebody in a cape, they expect something awesome to happen. And that's the man I want to be. So I have kids that, um, first time they're showing up to Gateway, they, they see me and maybe they're, they're nervous. They hold a little bit tighter to their moms, but eventually over time they, uh, they're running in. Like over, over months time, they're running in. Give me a high five, say hi to Mr. Tony. And a lot of them are amazed to see the guy in the cape. They, they have no idea. They've never seen like a real walking person in a cape. And then the Heelys where I'm floating across the ground. So it, uh, it, it draws the kids' focus, gives me a chance to welcome them, make them feel connected, and, and that's, that's important. I'm a world changer. <laughs> and if it's, uh, and it's my thing, I have this weird thing where I can't technically change the world, but I can change the world around me. So if I can make a, a kid's day or person's moment better, I've changed the world in that moment. If I made their day better, I've changed that day. And if I made their life better, I've changed, you know, and it, it all starts with uh, our immediate circle around us. It doesn't matter where you are in your faith or um, what you've done in the past, what you come from. I've probably done worse, trust me. We, we might have been just the average show before, but in, in Christ, we got a cape. We're all superheroes in Christ, and we need to go out and live it. Living out your mission is the goal. Living out what God has called you to do is the goal. Uh, don't wait for change to come before you live what you're supposed to be. You are good enough. You are qualified. God can use you right where you're at. You can be a hero. Not all heroes wear capes, but you're welcome to try mine on. Isn't that great? I don't know if you heard him at the end. Not, everybody, not every hero wears a cape, but you can try mine on. Isn't that great? By the way, you didn't know until now that anytime you see someone wearing a cape, something awesome's about to happen. That's, that, I don't know if that's the first thing that came to your mind, but uh, I love that. It's beautiful. Well, today we are so grateful for those of you who have served and served so faithfully, some of you for years, over a decade, 
and others of you just jumping in. And I can just tell you that this is a community that helped my family and I when we moved here seven years ago to this fast-growing city. You've made Austin feel like a small town. And your willingness to invest in others and take time to get up early or stay late is making a difference. I shared this a couple weeks ago, but there was a survey done of all the biggest cities in America, the 20 biggest cities. And on average, these cities indicated one out of every five people are lonely. And it makes sense because in a big city, there's so many people, but you just assume someone's taking care of the people at your work or in your neighborhood. But in reality, no one is. And in Austin, they did the same survey and discovered that two out of five indicated they were lonely. What you do to serve on Sundays and throughout the week is making a difference in a town that needs a demonstration of love, that they're not all alone. And so what I want to do this morning is talk through three different ways that serving actually unlocks something for us spiritually. And for those of you who serve, my hope is it will be a great encouragement. For those of you who have considered jumping in, my hope is it will show you the best way to unlock what God has next for you. Because when we serve, we not only meet a need, but, but we tap into discovering our purpose, living out our identity, and experiencing the fullness of life. So first, let's talk about discovering our purpose. Recently, we hosted a workshop called Advance, designed to help people discover their purpose, which, by the way, we're doing something similar this summer. It's called Catapult on Tuesday nights. I encourage you to come be a part of it. You can sign up at the Connect spot. It's about unlocking your potential and overcoming obstacles. But in advance, we looked at all these different assessments, StrengthsFinder, Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, and we ended our time looking at Really, our purpose, see, not only finding out your uniqueness, but finding the needs around you. And by serving others with others, you can actually tap into what you were created for. On that last night together, we looked at what God's purpose is for all of us. And it might surprise you, it shows up on the first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 says this, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I know some of you are thinking in this context, that means have lots of babies, right? But actually, if you read the totality of Scripture, in fact, the way you interpret the Scripture is with the Scriptures, you can see that being fruitful is actually something that we're told to do throughout, not just to Adam and Eve, but we're to be fruitful and multiply, and there's a spiritual meaning to this. You see, when you and I connect to God, we actually have the capacity to become fruitful people, to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, that our lives are to demonstrate love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When people experience us, they experience the fruit of the Spirit. We are transformed from the inside out. But not only are we transformed, but we're to transform others. We're to bear fruit by helping others find faith helping others experience life and freedom that we found in Jesus. See, you and I, we're invited into our purpose, which is to be transformed by God and to be agents of transformation for others. Even last week, Jamie described that we're a part of a, a, a family of God and that in this family, there are lots of mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles. 
you can be that for others. There's a spiritual dynamic to bearing fruit and multiplying. There's over 600 commands in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and perhaps the Bible has been a bit daunting to you. And there's this amazing moment where Jesus is asked to summarize and just declare what is the most important of all these commandments, of all these 600 commandments, which, by the way, when you read the Old Testament, know there are certain specific commands for certain specific people at a certain and specific time in history. And in that moment when Jesus was being asked, what's the greatest commandment? Oftentimes the religious leaders were trying to trick him, but he was too smart for their trickery. And so he answered the question, but it may be in a way you wouldn't expect. When asked the greatest command, he actually gave them two. You can make a case for maybe he gave them three. Listen to what he says. When asked the greatest commandment, Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything that came before can be summarized with loving God and loving people. Now, some of us resonate with the first, this idea of loving God. That's something that has come naturally to us, and, and, and finding faith, perhaps even at a young age, and connecting with God on our own is something we do all the time. And others of us, loving people is, is really what our thing is. And, and, and loving God is, is harder. It's not, doesn't come as natural to us. And what Jesus was basically saying is that both are important. That you cannot say you love God and not love people. And let's be honest, in order to love people, we need God's help, right? <laughs> but they're interconnected. He said this on purpose. See, some of us will veer towards loving God and we neglect people, but we're not in healthy relationship. And some of us will try to serve and love people, but without God's help, we can't pull it off. See, some of us are drawn to this idea of just me and Jesus and forget everybody else. But we actually need community. We need each other. There are things that God cannot teach us on our own that we must learn in the context of community. Listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, a loving community is both inclusive and a place willing to have hard conversations, honest conversations. See, at Gateway, we say, come as you are, and we absolutely mean that. That means come with your doubts and your struggles, and you're welcome to just be with us for as long as you want. But the other beautiful part of this community is you don't have to stay as you are, that we can help each other. We can spur each other on. We can encourage each other to become who God's created us to be. And the path towards that requires transparent community. And part of what we do and do really well is helping strangers become acquaintances. Acquaintances become friends, and friends become transparent community where you are known by others and others know you. But it takes time. It takes commitment. In order to discover our purpose, it means being transformed and transforming others. It means loving God and loving others. But the second thing we discover, what 
serving unlocks is living out our identity. You see, Jesus was a servant. The creator of the universe came to serve. Listen to this in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. I mean, think about that for a moment. The creator of the universe emptied himself. That's another way to to define what that word says. He emptied himself of his supernatural omnipresence and became a human being, a baby, dependent on mommy and daddy, growing up to teach with authority, to ultimately give his life, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. God came to sacrifice. God came to serve. During his ministry, Jesus said this of himself, referring to himself as the son of man. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That doesn't make any sense. He's the creator of the universe. When he comes, we should all start serving him. But see, he started to serve us. He pursues us. He loves us. See, some of us have a a wrong thinking about God. We see God as an old, angry man in the sky, and he's out to get us, and every time we do something wrong, we're afraid, or we try to do good things so he doesn't zap us, but God actually came to serve you and me. He pursues you and me. He loves you and me, and as a result, when we choose to follow him, we actually become servants of humanity as well. The followers of Jesus referred to themselves as servants. Paul, who wrote most of what we now call the New Testament, was really writing letters to churches and to church leaders. And in one of those letters to the Corinthian church, he writes this, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Do people experience you as a servant of God? Do people come to you to discover the mysteries of God that you've found? See, that's the kind of life we're called to live. If you follow Jesus, we're to become servants of humanity. Now, perhaps two of the more remarkable people in the scriptures who became servants of Jesus were Jesus' brothers. Now, they had the same mom but different dads, if you know the story. And James and Jude, I'm sure it must have been very difficult for them growing up with a big brother named Jesus. I mean, Jesus did everything right. I mean, I wonder how many times Mary asked them, can't you be more like Jesus? Which is very hard to pull off. And so I would imagine they grew up with some bitterness, some frustration. And in fact, we see in some of the early parts of the story, there are moments they were embarrassed by Jesus, tried to get Jesus to stop doing what he was doing. And yet, at the beginning of their letters, we have in the scriptures, they too refer to themselves as servants of Jesus. Listen to what James says. He writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Or Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother to James. That's not always how they saw themselves. In fact, I wanted to show you just a a, a tiny clip from the Bible Project. 
The Bible Project started by basically creating these little five-minute videos to help give context to every single book in the Bible. It's a great way to understand more what you're reading so you can better apply it to your life. And just wanted to show you the first few seconds of the story of Jude. Let's watch that together. The letter of Jude, or more accurately, Judah, according to the pronunciation of his name, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Judah was one of Jesus' four brothers who are named in the gospel accounts. None of the brothers followed Jesus as the Messiah before his death, but afterwards they saw him alive from the dead and then became his disciples. All these brothers of Jesus became leaders eventually in the first Jewish Christian communities, and Judah was known as a traveling teacher and missionary. And this gives us the background to understand the purpose of his letter. We don't know what specific church community he wrote to, but it was likely made up of mostly Messianic Jews. Look how angry they look. They're not interested, right, in Jesus. Some of you are thinking, oh, it's cartoons. I'll totally watch that, right? But it gives you this context. I mean, they did not have any interest in Jesus and what he was doing. I mean, they grew up with him, and now they saw him in front of crowds, healing people, teaching with authority, referring to himself as the son of man, a phrase that we used in the book of Daniel to represent the Messiah. In fact, listen to what happened. There was this one moment, Matthew 12, where they saw Jesus speaking and it says this, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's probably not what they wanted to hear in that moment. Who is my mother and my brothers? See, Jesus was creating a new family. And his brothers and their resistance were not included because they chose not to be. And Jesus was doing something different. They doubted Jesus, and yet they became his servants. Not only that, they willingly gave up their life, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just our big brother. He is the one that was promised that would come to rescue us. See, the story of James and Jude is a great case study in going from religion to relationship. See, some of the greatest proof to me that Jesus not only died but rose from the dead is that his brothers were transformed. They saw Jesus alive, even though they'd also seen him crucified. That's an incredible transformation. I wonder, any of you have brothers or sisters? I have a younger brother, and I tried for years to get him to be my servant. <laughs> uh, to, to no success whatsoever. I'll show you a picture of us back when we were cute. Here we go. That's me on the left. I had hair. It was a bowl cut, but it was there. My little brother over there looks like Bugs Bunny. His, uh, his body grew into those big teeth eventually. But when we were little, I mean, we got along so great. He looked up to me. I mean, I was taller than him. I was three years older. But, but then something terrible happened. I, I can blame it on hormones or middle school, but there was a, a season where we could not stand each other. He became my greatest rival. 
In fact, what would happen when my parents would leave the house and leave us alone, we would watch the Von Erichs wrestling on TV. And then we'd clear out the living room and we would wrestle. And I would always win. I'm bigger than him at the time, right? And I would pin him and he would be crying and he'd run off to his room and slam the door. I'd let him cry for a few minutes. Then I'd knock on the door and he'd reluctantly eventually open it just a crack. And I'd say, Scott, I am so sorry I beat you up. (laughs) Round two, he comes charging out. It happened all over again. And my brother's a very competitive guy, even as a kid. And so we would compete against each other in everything. We'd play Pong. You remember Pong? It's not as exciting as it sounds, even in just the name, but we'd play Pong, and then we'd play basketball in the front yard and football in the backyard, and every time we'd play, he wanted to bet me that he could win. And at one point, my little brother owed me $360. He kept saying, double or nothing, double or nothing. Now, at the time, this sounds ridiculous, it's a true story, we were paid a nickel for our allowance. I grew up in the 1980s. It sounds like I grew up in the 1920s. But do you know how many nickels it would take to pay back $360? But eventually, I became a follower of Jesus. And I started to feel guilty about this big debt he had. And so I'd fight him during the day, and at night, I would pray that he would actually follow Jesus. didn't seem to make sense, because the way I was treating him during the day, why follow Jesus when the person he knows that knows Jesus is beating him up during the day. And so eventually I canceled his debt. And he said, no, no, wait, one more time, double or nothing. I was like, no, Scott, it's all yours. It's Forget it. You never have to pay me back. And about six months later, he was at kids camp, and he decided to follow Jesus. It could be that his big brother was no longer as mean. Maybe he started to see a difference in me. But all I know is even as we've grown up, we've become the best of friends. I think once I moved out, it made it even easier. Here's a picture of us just a few years ago at my cousin's wedding. A couple years ago, cousin's wedding. (laughs) There we are. There we are. And then here's a few weeks ago at the final four. There we are. But you see... Even though we love each other, we're the best of friends, he is still, for some reason, unwilling to be my servant. In fact, he made me pay for my ticket to the final four. And he certainly has never proclaimed to others that I am the Messiah. Because he knows me. He knows me really well. He knows the highs and he knows the lows. And I was not a good big brother. But Jesus' brothers, they knew him. They doubted. They weren't so sure. They were skeptical, maybe even embarrassed. But eventually, when they saw him alive, they knew what he was saying was true. And then not only did they see him alive, but they actually experienced the presence of God in their own heart as the Spirit of God came to live among them. They were transformed by God, and they became agents of transformation to the world around them. I I want you to... Listen to some of the letter that James wrote, the half-brother of Jesus wrote, helping us see how important it is that we are transformed, that we might transform others. Listen to what he writes. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 
Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. See, he's describing someone who moves from religion, belief with your head, to following, having a relationship with God. Believing with your heart, a transformation between not just hearing it, but doing what the scriptures say, living a life, trusting God. Now, I've never seen Jesus, nor have I audibly heard him, but I know that he's alive. He's been more real to me than I could express with words. And I want to tell you that the way that I've experienced Jesus is the way that you perhaps have experienced Jesus, which is the way that some of your friends and family and neighbors could experience Jesus. It's in the context of us representing him, that people see the transformation in us, and they see us say we're sorry. They see us try to help meet needs, and in the process, they see a glimpse of God in us. You and I can represent Jesus and bring the love of God to others. See, the difference between religion and relationship is religion is man's attempt to get to God. But what Jesus offers is a relationship because he came to us. I wonder, have you ever had these thoughts in your mind? Thoughts like, I will do something good to get God's attention. Or I will do something good so that God will answer my prayer. Or I'm a good person, so I don't really need Jesus' forgiveness. Or I, I love the idea of God, but I'm not really sure about Jesus. Or I trust the universe will work things out. See, these are more religious descriptions rather than a relationship. See, we live in a world that's trying to get us to choose a religion or choose to reject religion, and that's a false choice. There's a third option The third way, the best way, is not religion nor rejecting religion. It's actually a relationship with God through Jesus. And what we see is that it's faith plus our works that actually brings life to us and the world around us. James writes about this in his letter, that it's because of our faith that we do good things. It's out of gratitude for what God has done for us that we do good things. And too often we depend on the good things we do to get us to God. As if his love is dependent on our actions. But I need you to know he loves you just as you are. No matter what you may have done. No matter what doubts you might even have now. God's love for you is real. And because of his love, when we say yes to his love, it changes how we live our life. Go and read James later, and you'll see this beautiful description of this connection between faith and works. But I want to move to Jude chapter 1. Because what happens is Jude writes how our faith plus our works can actually make a difference. 
But you, dear friends, he says, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. See, he's telling us how we live matters, and we are rescued so that we can become rescuers. But not only does serving unlock our purpose and our identity, it also allows us to experience the fullness of life. Jesus sent out his disciples to meet the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of those around him. And he sent them out saying this, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Have you experienced that spiritual principle in your own life? When you felt lonely and you needed a friend, by trying to be a friend to someone else, suddenly you have one. When you needed a hug, you found someone that needed a hug even more, and you give them a hug, and they hug you back. See, there's this beautiful relationship between our willingness to serve others, and in the process, we find ourselves more fully alive because we were designed for just that. And you may be here thinking, well, you don't understand. I don't have it all together quite yet. But here's what I've discovered in my own life. I don't get better so I can serve, but when I serve, I get better. It pulls me out of the selfishness and the, the thoughts that consume me. And when I'm trying to meet the needs of other people, suddenly my needs are being met. Listen to what Jesus, what's described of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the interest of Jesus? Is it singing to him all day long? Is it to be happy above all else? Is it to just join him one day in heaven? Or is it for him to fight against those who do not share our viewpoint? No, Jesus' passion, his interest was the needs of others. And if you follow Jesus, that should be what drives you, meeting the needs of those that God has placed in your life. And here's the beautiful thing. When we serve others with others, relationships are born. I want to mention this study that came up a few years ago. And it basically says that community, being in community, makes us healthier. It's fascinating. Listen to this. It was from a, a study done in Alameda, California. And it says this. The most isolated people were three times more likely to die than the more relational people. When someone had bad health habits but strong relational connections, they lived significantly longer than those who had great health habits but were isolated. John Ortberg, an author, took this study and wrote about it, and he said this, a great summarizing statement. It's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> Perhaps that's your takeaway today. In, in another study, in a book, Bowling Alone, Harvard researcher Robert Putnam notes that if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. There's health benefits to being in community, to being known, and to knowing others. 
And some of you are thinking, you don't understand. There's so much drama in my relationships. I don't want to live longer. <laughs> All right? I understand people can be difficult. But I want to tell you that you will experience the fullness of life when you learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as you love yourself. When you reprioritize your life, because some of you might be thinking, I'm just too busy, I can't do more. I, I want to encourage you to, to, to recalibrate your priorities. One of the things they discovered is that the first two-thirds of the last century, Americans were involved in PTA and going to church, and, and they were involved in bowling clubs. And then all of a sudden, in the last half of the century, that dropped off significantly. And what happened was it, was, it was television. We stopped engaging with friends. We stopped having friends. Instead, we watched reruns of friends. But I want to invite you out of that. What if you were to just reprioritize and, and do something like tithing your time? If you understand in the scriptures, tithing is this idea. Is you take the first 10% of your income and you give it to God as gratitude for what he's already done. And, and we do that here at Gateway. We give 10%, some of us more than that, towards what he's doing through this local community. And then Financial Peace University would tell you, you, you take another 10% and save it and you start to live off 80%. But what if you worked 40 to 50 hours a week? What if you were to take four to five hours a week and you were to use that time to invest in your relationship? That's one good date night and maybe breakfast on a Saturday. Tonight at four o'clock, from four to six, if you're married or engaged, we're, we're doing something for couples called Maximize Marriage. We'll talk about how to invest in your relationship. Or, or perhaps you take those four or five hours a week and you're, if, you're, if you have kids, you take those four to five hours and you unplug and ask them to unplug and you just spend time together. Or four to five hours a week with your roommate or your friends. You won't get to watch as many TV shows if you do this, by the way. But you'll begin to experience the fullness of life. I can tell you one of my next steps is as a gift, the church every seven years gives us two-month sabbatical, and this summer is my sabbatical. Never done this before. And so I'm going to try something I am scared I'll be able to, won't be able to pull off, but I, I'm going to go offline for two months, maybe six weeks, but somewhere in between. <laughs> I'm going to pretend it's 1993. No texting, no email, no cell phone, and... I just want to connect with God and connect with my family. I want to get past that, that noise. What about you? What is your next step? What is God calling you to do into a deeper walk with him, into a deeper community? So what I want to do in this moment is just pray for us. By the way, I should tell you, while I'm gone, John Ng will be taking great care of everything. Uh, Rob Overholt's coming to speak. Ted Beasley's coming to speak. Uh, Camille Hall will be speaking. Laura Sandifer. We have a great summer. It's going to be awesome. But my encouragement to you is whatever that next step is God has for you to take that next step. Let me pray for us. So God, in this moment, I just ask that we would be faithful. We would have the courage to do what comes next. God, perhaps if we were to do a quick assessment and ask the question, 
who knows me? Who's encouraging me and spurring me on? If there's no one that comes to mind, God, would you give us the courage to connect? If there's no one that comes to mind that we're spurring and encouraging, God, would you bring that person to mind? Would you show us how to do that? And God, for some, maybe they've been trying to change the world. They've been trying to live a life of love, but struggling. And it's because we can't even pull that off without your help. So God, may we surrender every aspect of our life. For some, it may be for the first time that we do that. God, whatever our next step is, may we take it, knowing that on the other side of that is what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.